0: And hello out there to all you Bedford and Sullivan folk. Uh, this is Sam Maxwell, and you are here with the Bedford and Sullivan podcast, the podcast that keeps you, the audience, active listeners in the Brooklyn Dodgers TV series research process. And we got a full house tonight to have a Jackie Robinson Black History Month conversation. And we have a lot of different places we want to go here. So without further ado, let me bring on the Epic round table I have here. We're gonna start in Bensonhurst, Brooklyn, with nothing other than the Brooklyn trolley blogger, Mike LeColon. How you doing, Mike?
1: I am well. Thank you for having me, Sam. Can't wait.
0: Well get get uh, give everybody your shameless plug as we go around the horn.
1: Thank you kindly. <laughs> Very simply, the Brooklyn Trolley Blogger at blogspot.com. It's just a little spin on the Brooklyn Trolley Dodgers. It's where I root for my favorite sports teams and celebrate my life in Brooklyn.
0: Perfect. And uh, I'm going to go out to Kansas City next uh, for the Negro League historian himself, the, the authority on everything Negro Leagues, and that is Phil S. Dixon. Phil, welcome to the Bedford and Sullivan podcast.
2: Uh, it's my pleasure, and looking forward to this conversation tonight.
0: And so, please, give everybody your shameless plug as well.
2: All right. Well, you can visit my website. It's uh, NLB, like for Negro League Baseball, Negro League Baseball Alive, NLBalive.com, and you can buy any of my products, including all of my books, and I will sign them so you don't have to go to Amazon and send it through the mail twice. (laughs)
0: Perfect. Well, You know, I I might not know where everybody is, but I do know where the next gentleman is, and that is David Krell off in Jersey City. Uh, David, uh, author extraordinaire, uh, please, uh, uh, welcome to the Bedford Sullivan Podcast again. Thank you. It's good to be back again. And by all means, give everybody your shameless plug.
3: Well, in keeping with the theme tonight and the mission of your show, I wrote a book called Our Bums, the Brooklyn Dodgers in History, Memory, and Popular Culture, and I have a book coming out in May called 1962, Baseball and America in the Time of JFK, that also dovetails with what we're talking about tonight, because 62 is the year that Jackie Robinson got inducted into the Hall of Fame, and you can find both of those books on Amazon.
0: Perfect. Thank you so much, David. And this is a first-time guest on the Bedford & Sullivan Podcast. That is Nick Deontay. Uh, uh, Nick, you're a baseball writer. Uh, we, we've talked on uh, Twitter, and it's so great to finally meet you here on the Bedford & Sullivan Podcast.
4: Well, thank you very much for having me, and I look forward to talking with everyone tonight and you know, introducing myself to the listeners. Uh, you can find me on all social media at Examine Baseball. Uh you can check out my column with Forbes, uh as well as my website, baseballhappenings dot net.
0: Perfect. Thank you so much, Nick. And we're we're gonna go out to uh the heart of Brooklyn Crown Heights uh for last but not least, Mr. Phil Maylard. What is going on, Phil?
5: Hey guys, you know I I'm very kind of humbled to be around this esteemed panel here. Um, yeah, I was born in Bed- Bed- Brooklyn, the Crown Heights. As a matter of fact, just a few blocks away from Ebbets Field. And uh, I've been in the film and television business for 30-plus years, music videos, all that kind of stuff, working on documentaries currently.
0: Excellent. Well, Phil, I'm going to start with you. And we kind of – we. Kinda, we we talked about this as a Jackie Robinson, black history month conversation, talking about the Negro leagues and everything. Um, but I, I want to start with this story uh, from my lift driving. And it, it was, it happened in Newark and I, I had a couple of young ladies in the car and we were, I, I was, I, I remember they were complaining about a subject. It was obvious that they were talking about, they were only in high school and they were talking about not liking particular subjects. And, Uh, the, the, the conversation about race had not come up. Nothing about race had come up when I asked them, well, if you had your wish, if you could study anything in school, what would it be? And I remember that one of them said, I would study black history. They don't give us, uh, anything regarding black history enough. And the only time we talk about it is in February. So, you know, with, with starting this conversation, Why is it that we're only supposed to be talking about this for 28 days out of the year?
2: Well, I uh, I have to say that for me, uh, black history is 365 days out of the year, Um, you know, because history is all around you. Of course, I'm African-American. And so uh, whether you're watching TV, uh, there's, there's history there. You know, there's history in education. There's history in medicine. There's history in economics. All this history is around you. So, uh, if academia is only talking about a 28 days out of the year, you'll never squeeze all that really good history in 28 days of the year. And there's so many things that they are using that were invented by Black people. They have just no idea. You know. You know, just simple things. And so, uh, yeah, it should be year-round. And and I think people should begin to think of history itself as being year-round, you know, African-American history included.
0: I appreciate that. And uh, I I, uh, forgot to mention we do have two spells on the uh, conversation tonight. So I'm going to refer to Mr. Maylard in Brooklyn and uh, Mr. Dixon out in Kansas City and i appreciate uh, I appreciate everything you just said uh uh mr dixon it it and and I'm going to go to Mr. Maylard next to respond um with that uh wherever you want to go well the,
5: there's a there's a very good reason why it's it's bracketed for February and that's just the consistent downplaying of the uh, African-American experience and involvement in the development of this country, it's a systematic thing. And it's meant for the shortest month of the year is not by chance. They stuck it in the the month of uh, Martin Luther King's, uh, you know, death, birthday, you know, when when they decided to do that. And that's a reason for that. But uh, the young lady's uh, quest for knowledge is not going to be given in established schools that are probably not uh, historic black colleges or have that kind of um, intuition into what their students need. It's information you have to search out on your own. And Mr. Dixon can attest to this. Just like anything with Negro league baseball, it's not going to be in a neat little book where you can read everything. You're going to have to dig deep in the crates using a DJ term, deep in the crates to find that. And that's how it's set up.
2: Yeah. yeah. Can I respond to that a little bit? Sure, please. Yeah, you know, um, Carter G. Woodson is the one who created uh, African American history. Originally, it was a week. When I first started uh, getting uh knowledge, I was at an all-black middle school. We had African American history week, and the reason why he put it in February uh, it, it was because of uh, Abraham Lincoln and then also Frederick Douglass. It's the reason why he put it in February originally. So, um, But it started off as a week, and uh, I think in the 1970s they expanded it <laughs> to a month. But once again, it's something that needs to be studied, you know, just right along with all history 24-7, 365 days a year.
0: Mr. LeColon, I'm going to go to you next. Uh, you grew up in, in an ever-changing uh, demographic of Brooklyn, a- and yourself with a, 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 a quite the background, what, where's your angle on all of this?
1: Just so you know, uh, I have a friend at work who calls me the incognito Latino. Uh, mm-hmm. Just so you know, I'm half Puerto Rican, and the other <laughs> side – I'm still in conflict with my father comes from Argentina. So in a sense, that makes me 100% Latino or does it because my grandmother, his mother was Sicilian. His father was French and they both came from Sicily and France respectively and met in Argentina met and raised their family. So am I half white and half Puerto Rican or am I a hundred percent Latino because my father comes from Puerto Rico? I mean, excuse me, Argentina. Uh, I've struggled with that for a long time, but I think part of this conversation needs to explore what happens in the home and your level of exposure. Uh, And the more exposed you've been in life, me being a New Yorker, me being a Brooklynite, there's no more diverse piece of real estate on planet Earth than I think Brooklyn. Uh, so, growing up, I grew up partially in East Flatbush. I was when I was born, my family was born in. I, I was born in Washington Heights, uh, within a mile and a half of uh, the Polo Grounds but I was born in 67 and then we moved to Brooklyn. I've been here ever since. And it was a predominantly African American neighborhood. Uh, but, you know, that distinction was unknown to me. Life was life. I woke up in the morning, I went to school, I came home, I played. I went to sleep repeat, you know, so life was very natural. Unfortunately, it wasn't till I moved to a more white neighborhood that Racism uh, came crashing into my life uh, from the outside in, and that whole premise about being the incognito Latino—people just don't know who I am. So they say things uh, in great comfort, thinking that I might be of the same thinking and like as they are. Uh, and I catch people in very awkward situations. I'm fluent in Spanish. Uh, So an odd way of answering and getting back to your question, Sam, is in war, the victors write the history books. I think we all know what I I mean by that. And there's still an element trying to control the narrative. And as Phil and Phil say, uh, insofar as education and what's being taught and what's not being taught in schools, Yes that needs to be written That needs to be revised That needs to be revisited uh, And it needs to be thought out And planned by a great broader Selections of minds And I think Nick can speak more to this Being from the education field But I will stress that a lot Needs to start at home At home You know they can teach you Whatever it is that they will in school But at home I think is where the context lies. That's where the gaps get filled in and that's where it gets personalized. And, uh, the more exposure, the better. The people who lack exposure are the people who seem to have most difficulty dealing with certain situations and conditions.
0: I'm going to go to Nick, uh, next. Um, you know, it, it's interesting, Nick, first, and also just uh, describing, since this is the first time you're on the podcast, your uh, your background as well. Um, you know, I, I think us who are not, you know, I'm, I'm Jewish, I, my background's uh, Jewish, my mother's Jewish, my dad eventually converted. Um, I think growing up and learning this history, you don't even realize, you don't even understand what you're missing. And and that it's mainly this white angle. You don't understand that about it. Um, it Just whatever direction you want to go off of that. Well,
4: you know, I feel like we know what we know, and we don't know what we don't know. And I want to thank both Phil's for so eloquently, uh, you know, stating, I think, the uh, depth of this issue Uh, and really touching on a lot of points that I wanted to, uh, you know, touch on, especially about the narrative being controlled. But I I think, you know, in school we have a limited window to teach, and a lot of that curriculum is dictated by here in New York City, by the regents, and, you know, what's in there. And uh, there has been a greater push in the last few years to diversify curriculum, diversify voices, uh, but at the same token, we can't teach, everything at the same time. And as uh, I think Mr. Dixon had, had, had said, you know, people have to be willing to, to look and, you know, how can we spark curiosity in kids and, and give them that exposure, you know, that they're willing to look. Uh, I could speak on my own experience coming up in high school when Ken Burns's baseball came out and how Buck O'Neill sparked my curiosity to really start taking a huge dive into the literature and, you know, I've, I've told this on, you know, other shows that, you know, I knew who Josh and Sapson were, but I didn't know, you know, who the Buck O'Neills, uh, you know, of the world were and, and the people that weren't the superstars. And uh, I feel fortunate that so many authors, you know, worked hard to capture that information and as you know, uh, a baseball player myself uh, to, you know, be enamored with the sport. And then learn about this other side that wasn't in, you know, the historical encyclopedias really opened up a new world. And so I was curious about it. And, uh, you know, when we talk about celebrating black history, uh, it is an everyday thing. But, you know, we can apply that to all other cultures. Right. And I think the bigger question is, how can we spark the curiosity and interest for for young people uh, to be willing to, uh, yeah, dig in the crates? and and get their fingers dusty uh, and, you know, see what else is out there. And uh, we're fortunate to live in a time where the Internet is at full scale and uh, social media is prevalent and uh, information is at your uh, fingertips, and there are so many great people uh, putting out um, just rich information. And, you know, as we see with MLB and, uh, you know, the recent announcement that, like, stats are still being dug up, that there's people willing to do the legwork. And uh, I think young people have so much more at their disposal uh, with the ease of technology that I think this is a really golden time uh, for people to dig in and that so many more voices are being amplified uh, through social media, uh, positive and negative. But there is a positive of that, you know, people who didn't have a voice now really do have a megaphone through all the channels that are out there
0: well said nick i i appreciate that and, and uh david I'm, i want to go to you but before we do uh mr maylard has to go and and the thing is Dave, david first off i appreciate that you helped trigger this conversation um but uh before we go over uh, to you um i'm going to go back to mr maylard and, and a big part of this conversation we wanted to have of course is jackie robinson so in, in everything that we've just said As well as In the context of Jackie Robinson uh, Mr. Maylard Go ahead
5: You know one of the things That, that Jackie had that helped him survive uh, His ordeals Not only uh, in getting into Major League Baseball but Throughout that time in America And I'm sure Mr. Dixon can attest to this Is is a great sense of self-esteem uh, and And that is One of the things that what black history does with people or uh, 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 young black people is they let you know that you belong to something much greater. And so you have a sense of self and, and the self-esteem and Jackie was the right person at the right time to have that. He dealt with uh, being in the army. He dealt with uh, being at the university and playing in, 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 in multiple sports. He dealt with all those things and he dealt with it. Uh, with class dignity But with a real sense of self And when you have that sense of self All the bows and arrows that come Towards you you can be deflected You become Teflon Yeah they're going to sting yeah they're going to hurt But you go lick yourself and you're going to come back The next day and that's the thing that, that about Jackie Really needs to be brought across so that People can say I can connect with that Some people might not say well I'm not A baseball player I'm not an athlete But it doesn't really matter it's just a matter of setting a goal, understanding that that w- what you're doing and understanding your self-esteem, and that helps carry you forward.
0: Thank you, uh, Mr. Maylot. And I know you got to get going, so I, I just need to say thank you for joining us. And if there's anything else that you'd like to say before you head out.
5: I'd just like to say to the panel, I'm sorry I couldn't hang around. I, I got a Zoom call for a possible documentary I have to do, but – it's a pleasure being here. I'll be, uh, I, 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 I can listen to this podcast later on, isn't that correct?
0: Yeah, that's right. That's right. Everybody yes. out there, you know, if you if you got to, you know, take a breather, you'll be able to listen to this on uh, Apple or Spotify or what have you.
5: So that's what I'll do. I'll pick it up. And uh, gentlemen, it's a pleasure. Mr. Dixon, I would like to reach out to you, uh, uh, you know, on that and have a one-on-one conversation at some point.
2: All right. I'd be
5: happy to do that. Excellent. Take care, gentlemen. Thank you.
0: Later, Phil. Thank you. And, and uh, we appreciate Mr. Maylar joining us this evening. And uh, without further ado, let's introduce our uh, uh, final member of the panel, and that is David Krell. Uh, David, you've been listening this entire time, wherever you, I'm sure your, your head is spinning.
3: Well, I'm a pop culture guy, and I always wonder when February rolls around, how come we're overladen with stories and images of Martin Luther King Jr. and Jackie Robinson and not Hattie McDaniel, who had to face down uh, white neighbors in a section of (laughs) L.A. called Sugar Hill. It was also called West Adams back in the day. Uh, There were white property owners who did not want her there and tried to uh, force her out, and the court uh, it went to court, and the judge threw the case out. And uh, subsequently, a Supreme Court case outlawed restrictive covenants. How come we're not talking about Thomas Carter? Thomas Carter was a cast member of The White Shadow, and the creator and executive producer of that show was Bruce Paltrow, Gwyneth's father. Well, Thomas Carter was relatively young, black actor, and he wanted to direct and Bruce Paltrow gave him a chance to direct. And what else did Thomas Carter direct? He basically created the template with Michael Mann for Miami Vice. He shot the pilot. He directed the pilot. How come we're not talking about a guy who revolutionized television? Because that was really the MTV generation. There's a a story that Brandon Tartikoff, the head of NBC, wrote on a napkin, MTV and Cops. Well, that's what that show was, and Thomas Carter was a big part of it. The, not the next year, I think the, uh, the following, uh, two years following, he directed a miniseries called A Year in the Life. He's a tremendously important director in television. Kevin Hooks was also a, a member of that uh, the White Shadow cast. He became a director. Paris Barkley has been, in just about every show you can imagine since God knows when, I, and you're talking about creators, black creators, who don't get enough notice. But I think it goes deeper, and we've talked about this on and off the air. Pop culture, entertainment, sports don't get enough credit. We we talk about Jackie Robinson. How come we don't talk about that it took almost 30 years for there to be a black manager? It's not so much what has been accomplished. It's what hasn't been accomplished, or why did it take so long for other things to to get accomplished.
0: Hmm. I'll go back to you, Phil, after that.
2: <laughs> what, what, okay, uh, this is Phil in Kansas City. Uh, deep conversation, but it's right on point. Uh, you know, uh, interesting thing, uh, maybe back in 1992, uh, there was a movement trying to make a, a Negro League movie, and uh they flew me out to hollywood to columbia uh, uh columbia lot to speak with the producer of the movie and it ended up not getting made but that that person i met with for several days was thomas carter so so i'm i'm definitely definitely with filling you on the, him being a pioneer uh in, in the whole thing but yeah there's so much history that does not get talked about and then also even when you talk about, you know, black baseball players, I know when I came along and and I started to look at the subject real hard, this was in the late 70s, early 80s. I'm in my early 20s, and I'm looking at it from a black perspective, which is quite a bit different, And because there there weren't a lot of black writers who were maybe approaching the topic quite the way that I did. But I noticed they might talk about a ball player, but the ball player never talked about his family. You know, uh, you didn't know anything about the ball player except he played ball. He was not like a human being. With, you know, you didn't know what he was interested in. You didn't know a whole lot of things. And then when they showed you what he was interested in, it was always stuff like cars or some kind of um, worldly type of things that uh, they wanted you to see. So they were painting a picture of right. the black athlete and, and uh, also I might mention, too, another thing that I tried to break up, and I think I did it pretty successfully, was they only talked about certain athletes. So uh, if, if you're talking about baseball they would talk, uh, and you're talking Negro League, they would talk about uh, Satchel Page, Josh Gibson, you know, cool Papa Bale, Buck Leonard. But having played baseball, I know that no one man is a team. And so when I came along, I began to talk about all the other guys on the team. And of course, now that happens quite regularly. But but back then it was uh, not happening very often. I might also mention too. I was as a kid, I collected baseball cards, and even there was racism even in the baseball cards. And to show you how show you how it goes. A uh, Jackie Robinson, 1952 tops, a baseball card. You know, you could probably buy that thing for 100000 $100,000, and that's the uh, excellent mint just like it came off the factory run yesterday, right? But the Mickey Mantle recently sold for $5.2 million. Now, keep in mind, Mickey Mantle card in the 50, 52 top set is card number 311. Card number 312 is Jackie Robinson. So how do you get uh, $5.2 and the other one less than 100,000, and then you, you look at the, the lives of those two players and you compare them, there's no comparison. And so it's, this is all part of the culture and the, the oppression that's a part of America that we need to be uh, putting under observation and working to uh, change and, and get people to understand maybe what some of the issues are
0: these little details you pick up on are just magnificent. And it's in every single, not just like the modern time, the way it gets sold, but the, the fact that they, you know, seemingly deliberately or subtly put his number behind in the actual pack of 1952. Uh, Mike, you've had an entire year of studying the Negro Leagues in light of the 100th anniversary of the Negro National League, uh, go ahead.
1: Well, I'll just pick up where you guys are leaving off. Uh, Jackie Robinson, you just mentioned the number, and Phil says that this conversation needs to be greatly expanded. Sure. A- and my, my point here, and I'll expand about it, is MLB's attempt to just pat itself on the back, which is, to me, a little bit aghast. I don't think they quite know what they're getting themselves into. And on that note, I think they better prepare themselves to really, really uh, make a best effort Negro League baseball into the great narrative. Uh, So baseball fans, sure, we know about Jackie Robinson desegregating baseball in 1947. Who's controlling that narrative? baseball fans will delve a little deeper and look up the Montreal Royals who's controlling that narrative. But how many people know that Jackie Robinson played for the Kansas City Monarchs? How many people know, Sam, you mentioned numbers. We know he was number 42. But how many people know he was number five for the Kansas City Monarchs? We like to shed light on the fairy tale We like to talk of Cinderella at the ball. But what about all the pain and suffering that she endured with her sisters? We don't talk about the Jackie Robinson narrative leading up to (laughs) what happened in 1947 or even 45 and the conversations that he had with Branch Rickey. Way before Rosa Parks, God bless her soul, but way before Rosa Parks, Jackie Robinson was on a bus in Kaleem, Texas, And the driver told him, get your ass to the back of the bus. And Jackie resisted. And this was while he was in the military at Fort Hood. And he was brought up on court-martial. And Jackie said, wait a second, my unit just got desegregated. And he was cleared and subsequently discharged honorably. You see, but this is part of the narrative that's so neatly concealed, hidden away, not talked about. All MLB wants to do is, look, we broke the color barrier. Well, what about the narrative leading up to that? What about the narrative, as Phil left off before he exited the show, uh, about character, personality, delving into their personal lives? What about that? How many people know that Jackie Robinson, and I say this with the big smile on my face, was actually an antagonist? Amongst his own peers. Going back to the Kansas City Monarchs, he replaced the shortstop named Jesse Williams, who was an all-star and perhaps the most popular player on the team. Do you think that went over well? No. But Jackie had the, uh, the wherewithal to not only deal with his contemporaries, but everything that lay ahead of him. And even then, I'm not so sure he knew what he was getting into. I'm sure he mentally prepared himself. But when the reality came crashing down, I think we can all see by the wear and tear it took on his body that there were some aspects of what he endeavored to do and and achieve that he may not have been prepared for. Uh, But, you know, Jackie Robinson, my point is he's a very complicated story. And I rile when MLB tries to simplify it. There's a much greater narrative that needs to be brought out into the open when it comes to Jackie Robinson, and it just doesn't involve number 42 or 1947. And that's my problem.
0: That's, that's, that's exactly... I, I completely concur. Um, I'm going to go to you, David, next. Well, when the Negro
3: Leagues Conference for Sabre was held in Pittsburgh, I had the privilege of giving a presentation on Wendell Smith. And I called the presentation, The Pen is Mightier. Because, again, in terms of media and entertainment, we overlook the people who helped shape the country, helped tell the narrative, helped define attitudes, define trends. Jackie Robinson's story was told largely through Wendell Smith that year. That's a story that hasn't been told. You saw it a little bit in 42. It was sort of an undercurrent, but it's a it would be a very interesting movie, I think, to show Wendell Smith's side of that story because he had prejudice thrown against him because of his his color. Uh, sports writers didn't want him in their elitist club. And it was, I think, Shirley Povich was one of the guys who uh, advocated for Wendell Smith to be included. And uh, the writers, you know, we're, we're, you're talking to a bunch of writers, so maybe it's a little self-serving, but I think it's incredibly important that we highlight the, the chroniclers from years gone by, not just Black journalists, but white journalists. How many people, how many sports fans today know who Jimmy Cannon was or Jimmy Powers or Jimmy Breslin? Uh, Not a lot, I guarantee you. So I think we need to do a better job as baseball historians at elevating the discussion to focus on the entertainment and media figures, because without them, then we don't know Jackie Robinson. We don't know the different parts of his story. I have 50 books on Jackie Robinson. Each one is different, each by a different author, each with, with different angles. And it, it's important that we know the, the bigger people, the the ones that really shaped the culture like Wendell Smith.
0: Perfect. I'm, I'm going to go to you next,
4: Nick. Sure. How how can I, how can I add to the, how can I add to the conversation? Um, so <laughs> I am listening here and uh, you know, one of the things that I think I've become more cognizant is of uh, who controls the narrative. And uh, as someone had said earlier that, you know, MLB is kind of like boxed in the narrative to make it, I guess maybe more palatable to the masses but Jackie Robinson and really so many of his other uh, contemporaries have a complicated story and it's it's not as easy as what you know we see in a 500 word article even some of the books you know that have been written and uh you know that's why I'm thankful for people like you know Phil Dixon who's on the call here and and Larry Lester um because you know we need the the perspective of a black man or black woman you know telling uh you know the story uh because it it needs to be uh told and often uh you know media is being told through uh the lens of often like white uh males and you know it is what it is right that's what it is but i think for someone to really true to be truly to be able to extend understand the experience right like they have to, you know, go through it, and, and I think there's a bit more authenticity. Like I said, when you have authors such as Phil and, and Larry, and I'm, I'm sure I'm missing, you know, some people being able to uh, tell the story because, uh, you know, they may be able to see and relate to things that, um, you know, we as, as, as white males cannot, and, uh, I, you know, I, I provides a diversity of voices and opinions.
0: I agree, and uh, before I move it back over to uh, Mr. Phil Dixon, I, I it's, it's interesting that, uh, like, South Park is one of those shows that actually hits the nail on the head. But, uh, uh, Nick, in a certain episode, um, Stan says, like, realizing why Stan is upset about a certain thing having to do with race, Stan, uh, a white guy from Colorado, says to token black <laughs> the, the token black characters of south Park in uh, satirical fashion he says, I get it, I don't get it, I can never understand what that word referring to the n word means to you uh and it, it it's that that's exactly the point, so uh I'm gonna go over to you next, Phil, um wherever you want to go, yeah,
2: you know what's interesting, I know. A lot of people have written about Wendell Smith, and he did a fantastic job. But, you know, one person that uh, I think is often overlooked is a guy by the name of Joe Bostick who was able to get uh, Jackie Robinson, Terrence McDuffie, and David Shopos Thomas uh, a tryout. Prior to uh, uh, Jackie Robinson signing with Brooklyn, he was able to get them a tryout and Joe Bostic just happens to be my cousin's grandfather uh but he was writing that time for the uh Harlem newspaper the uh I think it was the uh Village Voice or the People's Voice and uh so that's a person who they don't talk about and what's kind of interesting is that you know, when we talk about these people so often we we uh talk about the details of those things and we never bring the human factor you know uh, and and a lot of these stories, I've talked to many uh, uh, black writers over the years who lived in that period and what they experienced uh, it was it was, it, you know, a lot of these people were experiencing the same types of oppression. And and even when you talk to the monarchs, I was fortunate here to live in Kansas City and. Um, and, and knew some of the monarchs who played with uh, Jackie Robinson. Matter of fact, uh, Burke McDaniel—he died in my hometown. He lived in Kansas City, Kansas. He was on the team. Uh, of course, uh, another one that uh, people know, Hilton Smith. I had the honor of interviewing him. Uh, I knew Jesse Williams very well. Matter of fact, I wrote his obituary and uh, knew Jesse Williams. And of course, you couldn't talk to those guys without talking about the Jackie Robinson story and what happened when he was uh, on the team and uh, for that period in 1945. And uh, it was quite interesting because Jackie had a lot of uh, conversations with Dizzy Dismukes, who was kind of pretty much locked into what black baseball had been, and then Jackie was talking about what it could be in his eyes. And, you know, him coming from California, he maybe had a different way of looking at it than maybe some of these people who came from the south, or even from my hometown in Kansas City, Kansas. Uh, I might mention, um, where I live in Kansas City, Kansas, um, we were 60 miles from Brown versus Board of Education in Topeka, Kansas, that landmark case. But even though I'm only 60 miles away in the same state, I don't even have a white teacher till I'm in the eighth grade. I never even had a white student in my class until I'm in high school in the tenth grade. So, you uh, you know, all these are stories just waiting to be told either from the major league standpoint or, you know, just, just life in general. Uh, That's why I'm thinking black history and I'm knowing is 365 because it just never stops.
0: Well, that's, that's an interesting place to go. And I'm going to go back over to you, Phil. Uh, You know, I, I think we've done a lot of, of chatter of course about all the knowledge you have regarding the negro leagues um but if you could maybe touch a little bit on your story you you just uh, uh, touched on not having a a, a white teacher till how old were you uh,
2: i was in the uh, the first white teacher I had i was in 8th grade didn't have a, a white student in a class in the 10th grade so, uh, so but what was city Kansas, like
0: pri- prior to that
2: yeah, it was it – uh, I lived in a segregated community, no doubt about it. Uh, uh, everything I knew was black. I played sports. We had all black baseball teams. And what's interesting is uh, we came from uh, my community, and we would go out and maybe – I think one year I was 15 or 16, we were in the Mickey Mantle League. So we would go, and we would go as, as 60 miles away in small – and play uh, white kids in small towns – who were and there were a lot of towns in this league and when we left our our park which is all black community we had not one ounce of inferiority we knew we could beat anybody and and we did beat it. <laughs> we did beat them in their own park sometime 20 30 to nothing they had the best kids from their town and we were just one little area from my town but we had black coaches who believed and instilled in us that you are as good as anybody, and if you're at your best, no one's going to beat you. And those are the attitudes we took. So even though we had an all-black community, we didn't face inferiority because there was no one else there to tell us that you couldn't do it. We didn't know it because we just didn't run into it. But once you left that community in high school, I started to see it. I started to see it. And it was quite confusing at first because it didn't make sense. And even to this day, sometimes oppression is very
0: confusing to me, even though I know the origin of it. Thank you for that, Phil. I appreciate this tale. I appreciate the story. And uh, I'm going to turn the conversation uh, around now and in, in, uh, just back to talking about Jackie Robinson and baseball's relationship, Major League Baseball's relationship with him. And I'm going to go back to you, Mr. Trolley blogger Mike McCollant, because you're the one who talked to, you're the one who criticized MLB and the way they basically just pat themselves on the back uh, about Jackie Robinson, about welcoming Jackie Robinson into their league. So, in that, is this is the fact that the, the way you believe they ha- have not done enough regarding the Jackie Robinson story? Is that one of the reasons why Larry, Do- uh, Larry Doby doesn't get enough credit on the American League side of
1: things? Well, for one, Larry Doby had a considerably more difficult time, I believe, than Jackie Robinson did. Uh, he had more adversity to deal with from his own teammates, whereas at least a few of Jackie Robinson's teammates put their hands out in friendship not so much with Larry Doby. Uh, You know, I have to temper my criticism because it's not like they've failed. They've taken taken up in recognizing Negro League statistics, period, end of sentence. See, I can't let them off the hook that easily. All they've done is recognize statistics. And to me, that's limiting the narrative. And by saying we're going to incorporate that into our greater statistical record and leaving it at at that and letting them speak for themselves, yeah, to me that would equate to a a pat on the back. Look what we're doing. Uh, But, you know, they've yet to fail. This is the first step. So it really the onus is on them to move forward. And I just hope that they do this smartly. Nobody's perfect. We're all human beings. We're all going to make mistakes. There will be omissions and there will have to be revisions along the way, obviously. But I just hope they go about incorporating and expanding this narrative smartly uh, with as much knowledge and range uh, of expertise as humanly possible. Uh And that means right down to the fan. The fan has a lot to do with this. Because as we've discussed with with Mr. Dixon, uh, a lot of the researchers out there are just people fascinated with the game of baseball. And a relatively unknown narrative when you compare it to the traditional American National League game. Right. And it's like candy. The more you And the deeper you get into it, the more of it that you want because of the satisfaction that you get from the sweetness of the story and the game and the history and the people and the personalities and what they have to overcome. And if you can't appreciate that, well, there's something diametrically wrong with you. So I I don't want to rush to judgment and say MLB has failed. No, they've taken a bold step forward, a late step forward, but... There's so much more to do, and I'm just hoping that they go about this smartly uh, because there's so much, so much, so much to cover. It's a very complex story. Uh, As it is, you know, they're limiting themselves to 1920 through 1948, I believe. And that right there is a mistake because there's the amateur era. There's the 18th century game. And what they are in the midst of doing omits all that. And that's wrong. Here locally, for instance, the Brooklyn Royal Giants, they were an amateur era team, but they bled into the 1920s. Are they going to be incorporated into this record? No, they will not. So there's a lot of things that they need to revisit and address and formulate a plan of attack insofar as how they're going to really encompass the great narrative. I keep on saying the great narrative. And they also, cycling back to Jackie Robinson, they also must talk about the steps leading up to desegregation. Why not bring up Buck Leonard and the thoughts of Jackie's contemporaries thinking that he was picked because they thought he was going to fail, but that wasn't the case. Jackie Robinson wasn't allowed to fail why don't why why aren't we talking about the pressure being placed on him? He wasn't allowed to fail, but Buck Leonard and others thought that you know the establishment was picking Jackie Robbins because he was most likely to fail because he wasn't exactly the best Negro baseball player on the scene at that time. Why isn't MLB talking about that? You see, so there's a greater story to be told, and I will credit them for taking the first step. Uh, and it's been several months, and you know I'm yet to see them take a second at a minimum, baby step. Yeah. Guys,
0: I just have to say my filmmaking senses are tingling right now with everything you guys are saying. Uh, there, there's been so many points where I'm like, well, that's what I'm here for. But <laughs> that's, you know, that that's that's uh, all going to be explored. David, I'm going to go to you next.
3: Yes, sir. Well, there's so many points to to cover. What, which one do you want me to address? <laughs> So, so
0: many have wherever been raised. Wherever you in want the last to go. No, I, I, I think we're, we're at the point that um, wherever you want to go with uh, what Mike just said, please. Well,
3: I think one thing that seems to get lost in the discussion of Jackie Robinson is what happened after he broke the color line and why. So if you read The Boys of Summer by Roger Kahn he tells you that this was not about sociology. This was about getting the best players on the field that you can. And if you're a businessman, which Brent Tricky was, his business was baseball, and you have a group of players that, for whatever reason, cannot play in Major League Baseball, but they're good enough. Their skills are parallel or better than a lot of the major leaguers, but because of the color of their skin, they're not allowed to play. Well, that seems ridiculous. If they can compete, you want the best players on the field at one time. And that's really the lesson. It's one of meritocracy. It's one of not being afraid of somebody because he or she is different. You want the best people on your team, whatever that team is, whatever your business is. And that, I think, is really the lesson. Because without, without that, uh, without Jackie, without Mr. Rickey, when would the, the major leagues have integrated? 49, 51, 55? We, we'll never know that. But it's incredibly important to understand that this was about victory. You want to win. And how can you how can you really say, I mean, in retrospect, it's easy for us to look at this period and say, man, they were so uh, stupid and antiquated. But if you just break it down to winning, well, wouldn't you want to win? Wouldn't you want Josh Gibson? Wouldn't you want Satchel Paige? Wouldn't you want Cool Papa Bell? By the time that Jackie broke the color line, a lot of those guys who are in the Hall of Fame now uh, they were past their prime. They would, they would never play in the majors. And it's a shame because it would have been cool to see what Bob Feller could have done on the mound opposing Satchel Page on the other side or how he would have pitched to uh, Cool Papa Bell or, uh, or Biz Mackey or Josh Gibson, any of these great players who are in the Hall of Fame. And a lot of them only got in recently and are only getting noticed recently, I think uh, someone wrote a bio of Oscar Charleston in the past couple of years, Cool Papa Bell, I understand there's a bio coming out very soon. We're only now starting to take notice of it. And relating to Mr. Gibson, I didn't know that he died at the age of 36 until I saw the HBO movie Soul of the Game in the mid-'90s. Because, again... Jackie gets a lot of the limelight and rightfully so. Uh,
0: I think we lost David, unfortunately, um, but I'm, I'm going to go to Nick uh, next and uh, hopefully David can call back anytime. Go ahead. Yeah. I, you know, i like I said,
4: the last thing, I'm really doing a lot of listening and, and I would, I would love if you directed me somewhere because, you know, it, it, it yeah. feels like people have their own thing that they want to talk about. And, um, I I think I'd do better if, if I kind of responded here. So if you have something you want me to yeah. expand on about Jackie, like I'd, I'd love to take it there, but I don't have something, you know, that that's in line without just kind of going off on a tangent. So I'd love to support the conversation, but yeah, if there's, there's something no for you, sure. you feel like uh, an I, ad, I think, I
0: think, I think in, in, within that, I'd like to keep the Larry Doby conversation uh, going. Um, It was interesting what Mike was talking about, how, you know, how dramatized it basically has been the support that Jackie got, even in light of non-support, which is also dramatized. The non-support is also dramatized. Um, But we literally, you know, in terms of the general narrative, you have to go searching for the Larry Doby conversation yourself Whereas with the Jackie Robinson conversation, it's kind of hard if you're a diehard baseball fan not to inter- intersect it. So where, where are you? Where are you, have you fallen in your research on Larry Doby?
4: Uh, you know, that's a great question. I had the chance to speak to Eddie Robinson earlier this year. Uh, Eddie is uh, 100 years old and is the uh, oldest living uh, Major League Baseball player. And, uh, you know, Eddie had to uh, lend Larry Doby his glove. Uh, to play first base uh, because that's where Lou Boudreau put him. And, uh, you know, some accounts, uh, Robinson had said that, you know, he was not happy about that. And when he wrote his book, maybe about eight, nine years ago, he said it's because he just wanted to play. And it's it's difficult now, right, to call him on it and maybe say, you know, was that really the case, you know, in in, uh, in 1947? But, uh, Doby was largely by himself, right, and 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 isolated. And uh, I think his side is not told uh, enough, other than a footnote, as oh well, Larry Doby integrated the American League. And um, you know, it wasn't until a few years later, when when the Indians, you know, started to further integrate, that he had some support. But he was opposite of like Satchel, right? Like Satchel was, you know, uh, you know otherworldly, and, and, and doby was more quiet and reserved, and uh, even, you know, with the managing, right, like, uh, you know, Doby was really in line to be, uh, you know, the first manager, and, and right, and, and, you know, Frank Robinson, right, like, got ahead of him, and uh, I, I just think because Doby was always, like, second, his story is told in a very secondary way, but um, you know, Doby had his own struggles and isolation that he went through that's not widely told, and often he's mentioned as a footnote instead of the pioneer. And let's not forget, like, the extremely talented baseball player, you know, that he was, right? He was an all-star. He's in the Hall of Fame. Um, you know, he was a, a tremendous outfielder, right? And the Negro Leagues also played the infield, too. And uh, I just – I don't think that gets mentioned enough. So when we discuss Larry Dovey, I think there's room – uh, for a deeper dive into his career and for more of it to be exposed because, you know, it, it wasn't like, uh, you know, he was only a few months behind Jackie Robinson. It wasn't like we're talking about light years. Like, Dolby had to uh, take all this on. And he was a reserve, too, right? He barely played, he didn't play that much in 1947, right? It wasn't until the following season where he played
1: uh, regularly. And, Sam, if I may, yes. baseball fans might know. Baseball fans might know that Larry Doby was the first African-American to both homer in and win a World Series. But how many people know that he was awarded the Congressional Gold Medal, uh, uh, the Congressional Gold Medal, awarded to him in 2018? See, and that's part of the narrative that doesn't get discussed. Right. Uh,
0: Before I loop it over to uh, Mr. Phil Dixon, I want to go to David, who got cut off.
3: Yeah, I, I don't know what happened, but I don't know where I left off either. <laughs>
0: <laughs> Touche, sir. Touche. Well, we'll we'll loop back around to you in a second. Welcome back to the Bedford and Sullivan podcast. Uh, I'm I'm going to go back to Phil here, and I, I think well, I, I, where I wanted to go with you, Phil, um, was in talking about the integration and Jackie getting most of the limelight in terms of the integration. Uh, Can you remind me who the first black pitcher to integrate the uh, major leagues were? Uh, And it was a Dodger as well. Am I correct?
2: Yeah, it was Dan Bankhead. Dan Bankhead would have been the first one. Um, But actually, you know, you want to learn this from watching the movie 42, but there were two pitchers that were in Montreal with Jackie uh, one of them was uh, uh, Ernie Wright, and the other one was uh, uh, Partlow. Uh, so Partlow, I matter mean, of fact, I'm trying to think of Partlow's first name right now. But I interviewed Partlow, and and the, the interesting thing that Partlow told me, he said when he was with the Roy Parlow was his name. He said when he was uh, with the Montreal team, Clay Hopper, the manager, would never talk to him. He said uh, if they wanted Roy to pitch, he said Clay would go to Jackie Robinson and he would say tell Jackie to tell Roy that he's pitching today. I thought that was kind of interesting that you're on a team and the manager won't even talk to you. You know, another ironic thing, you know, Monty Irvin's in the Baseball Hall of Fame, right? And Monty Irvin's story was quite a bit different from uh, Larry Doby's story. But if I'm correct, uh, Monty Irvin got into the Hall of Fame in the 1970s, I think it was 1973, where Larry Dolby doesn't get into the Hall of Fame until 1998. Talk about lack of recognition. Uh, That's just give you uh, just an idea of how baseball was functioning and thinking at that particular time. You know, I might also mention, I want to jump back to those statistics real quickly. Uh, If you you look at the Major League press release, the announcement of those – uh, of those incorporation of those stats, you will see that it says 3,400 Negro League players will now be recognized as Major League, right? And so what they're doing is then they turn around and said they're going to take seven leagues, seven different leagues, you know, starting with the Negro National League, the Eastern Color League, they're going to take the 1932 East West League, the Negro National League. Of the of the 30s and 40s and the Negro American League, so it's seven leagues altogether. But I, but I but I look I listened to that and I said, they can't even get the press release right. Now, I'll show you why. You know, in the Negro National League, they used to carry a, a roster starting in 1920, maybe 14, 15 guys. But let's expand that out to 20. So if you got 20 players on a roster and you got eight teams, right? So at most you probably maybe you, you have, uh, what, 120 players in the league times eight? Now you take that eight and then you multiply that by seven leagues. And say if each league had eight teams in it, some had some less, some had more, what you're going to get is about 1,200 players. Now some of those players appear in multiple years. So when I looked at that release, I said the release isn't even correct. And they expect us to buy these numbers that they're about to present to us. So that's just me being skeptical. And, you know, I've talked on a lot of radio programs, but no one seems to even catch that small detail. And it's not really that small.
0: So, Phil, do you think it has to do with, with Major League Baseball having more of an authority within the ranks to understand this stuff? <laughs> Well, i put it this way. I
2: think in their their wanting to do something in the 100th anniversary of the Negro National League, they put the cart before the horse and just jumped out there and tried to announce it without nailing down enough of the details of even how it was going to function. I, I know even talking to a sports writer who had talked to Elias, Elias didn't even know how it was going to work. When they announced it. So I think that uh, they just got ahead of themselves trying to, uh, you know, do something positive in the 100th anniversary of the Negro uh, League. So, um, you know, I just think, you know, they're fumbling along. Uh, I also think that these statistics, to me, I look at it as like integration. If anyone's around in the 1960s, uh, when, when America started to do more integration, I know in black communities, uh, people started moving out of communities. People stopped supporting businesses. Uh, you know, the whole community changed because there was no plan. It was just people moving about. And I'm almost concerned that uh, these Negro League statistics could become the same type of uh, situation, and then you get 50 years down the road and people said, man, integration wasn't that good. You know, it had a lot of problems, but it was the problem was because it wasn't thought out and executed, you know, with any kind of flu, fluidity. So, uh, yeah, I'm really concerned about these statistics, and, um, you know, I haven't made any – I haven't said anything that says
0: I wasn't. Fair enough. Uh, David, we got you back uh, again, and what I'm wondering, you know, you've been rather critical about Major League Baseball, not – doing uh, enough to keep their exposure going. So within this faux pas, if you will, what Phil is talking about, what do you think they need to do better to not only continue to build the brand of baseball, but also uh, uh, take care of the education of what was missing?
3: Well, Well, I haven't been critical of Major League Baseball. I've been critical of us. It's up to us. It's up to the fans it's up to the historians, it's up to the scholars. We have the power to do podcasts like you're doing tonight, to contribute Sabre articles to the website, to journals, to start our own blogs, to write books like Phil is doing. We have the power to do that. We ought to be doing more to uh, influence our communities. Maybe just giving a lecture at your local library, now it would be on Zoom, And if you got six people to show up uh, for a lecture about Major League Baseball, about the Negro Leagues, that's six more than you had the day before. So maybe those six influence six more and so on and so on. We need to do a better job. If, If we wait for Major League Baseball or the Hall of Fame or the Negro League Museum to do something, we'll be waiting for a long time because they have an agenda, They have a to-do list that's a mile long. They have priorities that we don't know about. So it's very easy for us to pontificate and say, well, they should do A, B, C, and D, and then the rest of the alphabet will fall into line. Uh, We need to propel that conversation. And one of the great things about Saber, Sam, is that you have the freedom to talk about these things. Now, granted, you're talking to like-minded people, but hopefully – you get enough of those people together and maybe you can break through to something mainstream, like being asked to guest lecture a class for black history month or write an op-ed for your local newspaper or write a book that combines uh, race with what's going on in America, race in baseball plus racial diversity and racial attitudes at the time of the Negro leagues. So we have an abundance of opportunity We have the freedom to do it. We can't do everything we want, but we can do something. And I think it starts with things like this podcast. Just talking about it, just talking about possible solutions is a great step forward because a lot of people don't. They just shrug their shoulders and they say, oh, well, that's the way it's going to be. It's great, by the way, that the Negro League stats are going to be officially – considered major league stats but at the end of the day they're stats i want to hear stories i want to hear the stories and we need more writers not less we need more stories if i have 50 books about jackie robinson there should be 50 more we should keep talking about these types of issues and it's not just a racial divide there was also a northern southern divide the these negro league teams by and large were in the south there were some in in the northeast but a lot of them were in the South. That's an interesting cultural topic that I haven't seen discussed too much, the geographical diversity.
0: Well said. Um, Nick, you know, usually with first-time guests, we like to get kind of a breakdown of their baseball history and, and also general personal history. Um, so within the context of your fascination with Jackie Robinson, as well as the Negro Leagues, how did you come about to discover this game? What is your background?
4: Uh, to the game? I mean, I grew up playing it. I grew up here in, uh, in, in Queens, New York, and, you know, I, I played the game in, in Little League and high school and college and adult leagues and um, a little semi-pro. And, uh, you know, so I've always been playing the game. So, you know, my interest in the Negro Leagues was just I was a voracious reader. Uh, I collected and this stuff started to go hand in hand. And again, I, I kind of came of age right around the same time that uh, there was a resurgence in the interest uh, in the Negro Leagues, right? And so, as I said earlier, there was literature, a lot of it available. And the players were available too, right? So I was fortunate enough to go to uh, two of the reunions in New Jersey in the like mid-90s, I think 94 and 96. And so I was able to meet a lot of the players. But Uh, Jackie Robinson, my my uncle was a a, a big fan. He told me that my grandfather had taken them to the polo grounds, uh, you know, to see both uh, the Negro Leagues and the uh, Giants and the Dodgers uh, play. So I heard stories of Jackie growing up and reading books about him as a kid in elementary school. My interest, like I said, when there was this explosion of um, literature that had come out and that the players were, Uh, you know, available for shows and I would write to them and, you know, get letters back and, uh, you know, James Riley's historical encyclopedia, which is such a wonderful work. And I recommend people who are interested in the league to get that book because it's just so uh, deep, um, you know, that covers so many players. And uh, that is what really kind of turned me on. And then as I, uh, you know, got older and I was able to have more access as a writer um, I just I picked up the phone and went to work 2007-2008 and I started calling players who were still alive that played with him, that played against him that played in the International League that season uh, in uh, 46 uh, and I was able to get a lot of stories and uh, you know hopefully one day I'll publish all of them but I've been able to release a lot of them through my own website and other sites that I write for because you know now those guys are passed I'm be able to tell their story. But um you know, Jackie Jackie's Jackie, right? And people always have a story about him. Um but there were also other players that came across and uh their stories I think are equally as rich and interesting for the twists and turns that they had and, you know, did they get to the majors, did they not? Why didn't they? Some of these guys were able to cross over and, and, you know, languished in the minor leagues for years. And, you know, why did they not make it and other people make it? And then, you know, the whole winter leagues, right. And that's another thing that I think there's room for research and, and amplification on the winter leagues because they were uh, integrated and, um, you know, people have been able to tell the stories from that. So I I hope that I've answered, you know, some of my background and that's how I got into it and how I've been able to take it uh, farther. Uh, you know the last ten
0: ten fifteen years that's great Nick thank you uh, and just in in Mike when he was talking about that and just talking about the game, he was reminding me of the foundation of endearance this game has um and and it you know he also just mentioned the winter leagues, which you can obviously touch upon but in in terms of we're we're talking about the, the specific and broad strokes when it comes to Major League Baseball. And I'm thinking that, like, you know, I, once I got into this game when I was 13 years old, the summer of 98, I literally read Ken Burns like it was a school textbook, like it was my favorite subject. And, and not to say that it is the end-all be-all, that book, but to a 13-year-old kid first discovering the sport – it was that that did feel like the end-all be-all book, and this game has a lot of they, 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 they they're they're basically secretariat to begin with, and And in everything that we're talking about with trying to foster continuation as well as remembrance, what does Major League Baseball need to do better?
1: What does baseball need to do better? That's a biased – that involves a biased answer because I'm in my 50s and I grew up on a different game. And obviously there's a younger generation that wants more or at least different things from this game. And I'm not so sure the two sides are going to be able to compromise. Uh, And the new generation is going to win out because they are the future ticket purchasers. It's like marketing 101, brand loyalty. They already have me. I'm not going to turn my back on them now. They're trying to win over the new customer. And every so often, their marketing campaign changes to appeal to the newer and younger audience. Uh, so, you know, my answers would be biased. My answered, my answers would be retrogressive. My answer would involve... Uh, rescinding some of these rules changes and and making it close to the game that I grew up on and grew passionately about starting in the early seventies. So, you know, my answer would be problematic. Now, sure. People my age or perhaps even older might agree with me. We've experienced change throughout our lives, throughout our baseball lives. We saw the advent of free agency the designated hitter, you know, we've seen that. And we've seen even more changes along the way. Uh, My generation, as David pointed out, was the generation that saw Frank Robinson become the first African-American manager in baseball. We've seen change, but what's happening lately under Commissioner Rob Manfred is, is, is something else. I was about to use a very bad word, but it, it really is something else in this. It, <laughs> it's it really is an assault to my senses because it's a it's a tremendous departure from the game that I grew passionately about. Uh, and if I may, I'd just like to throw a couple things out there, Sam. Uh, you did mention winter league baseball, and, and you know if you if you're asking me the same question you posed, Nick you know, my mom's side of the family. You could take any one of us and baseballs will fall out if you cut us open. Uh I'm spoiled and I realize that now. But uh you know it Sam and I don't disclose it but I have two cousins who played Major League Baseball. Uh they operate under one name and I operate under another. Like I said, I get to run around with this French last name. So people really don't know what to make of me. Uh, but nevertheless, my mother's <laughs> side of the family, you know, my baseball education started in the early 70s. I was a Met fan from birth. I knew this. Uh, but my baseball education came from my aunts and my uncles. And, you know, it started with the Mets, and it started with Roberto Clemente uh, that my uncles just raved about and, and educated me on. And from my aunt my education of Willie Mays began. And simultaneously, I was learning the American game, the Puerto Rican game, and Winter Leagues as a whole, and about Negro League Baseball, all in one sitting at a Met game, 72, 73, 74, with my aunt. And I look back now, and I know that's an amazing education furnished to me by my family. Uh, and nowhere else. So uh, I, I've had a unique insight into baseball, and my aunts and uncles have tremendous relationships with other families the Alou families, the Alamar families, uh, I Gian's family, my mom, personally, those, Lou Panella and Felix Mian. Uh, and, and I'm not going to say that I've ever benefited from these relationships. Uh, families somewhat separated, most of them are Puerto Rico, me and my cousin, uh, an aunt and uncle, and another aunt and uncle here in New York City. At various times, you know, other family members moved back and forth, but, you know, it is what it is, and I've lived my life, in the love players. But But uh, it's a unique view into baseball, and like I said, my education started uh, with the American game, the Negro League game, through my education for my aunt about Willie Mays and how he started, and all that started simultaneously for me. And I've been hooked ever since. And I am a diehard Mets fan. But in 1976, I was at Game 5 of the American League Championship Series, Yankees versus Kansas City Royals, when Chris Chambliss hit that home run. And I was a part of that chaos that ensued when the ball came down out of the sky in the right field section behind the wall and just chaos broke out. Uh, And I was nine years old you can imagine how that's been ingrained in my, in my mind and my recollection and my baseball heart ever since that is the greatest baseball moment of my life. And that's coming from a Mets fan.
0: <laughs> well, hopefully uh, Steve Cohen's Mets can change that relatively soon uh, with a- at least 25% capacity. Um, Mr. Dixon, <laughs> uh, I'll head back over to you. Um, uh, just what what's just so beautiful is you can hear that that emotional connection that you know you you do get it from other sports I, you know I don't want to like I don't want to make it seem as if baseball is completely separate from the sentimental element um, but they're they're just they're just to me and I think millions of baseball fans around the world. There there is this visceral connection that seems to separate our love of the game versus other people's love loves of the game. But you know, that that just might be from you know, my biased point of view. Uh Phil, you know, he mentioned Roberto Clemente, who I I, I think I had heard about before, but I, I don't think I completely realized that he was a property he was the property of the Dodgers at some point. And played in Montreal. Uh, um, my question to you is, if we could kind of uh, go into that tangent about the Black Latin ballplayers. I think Latinos have their own persecution and their own story to tell. Um, but what was it like for the the Latino ballplayers uh, with darker complexions?
2: Well, let, let me let me give you just a little bit. Of another story, very similar, kind of related to that. I was on a broadcast with a Mexican baseball historian, Mexican American, out in Los Angeles. And, you know, I've been around baseball for a long time. And, you know, I knew some Mexican baseball players growing up. Matter of fact, uh, Mike Torres comes from Topeka, Kansas, wasn't too far from me. And, uh, but when I heard him talk, He he basically related something to me that I had never heard, which is the Mexican-Americans who were right here in this country never got a baseball star until uh, Fernando. And Fernando was – and we're talking about the 80s. And, you know, I had never really looked at that because when I looked at all the the Spanish-speaking players, I kind of lumped everybody together, never thought about – the Mexican-Americans who are actually in this country are coming from the country of Mexico. And I said, man, that's a, that's a, like a chapter we don't hear about. What we do hear about is the ballplayers, especially coming from Cuba and Puerto Rico. And, uh, I, you know, I, I would tell you this, uh, in the 80s, I had the pleasure of working for the Kansas City Royals, and I worked for the Royals uh, from about 87 to 90. And a couple of things I noticed. I noticed that the the Spanish speaking ball players weren't getting the same treatment and this was white and black ones and uh, they had no draft down there so they would get kids who were young, real young and then they bring them through the minor league system you know and you know you bring you bring 50 kids over here you know and you in one organization and you know maybe to get two or three that're going to remain but they had a whole completely different system of how they were bringing uh, ballplayers from the Dominican Republic and Puerto Rico through the minor league system, getting to the major leagues. And and that disturbed me because I didn't realize until I got there and and discovered that. But I know also for me, uh, especially early on, uh, being a young baseball fan, and I'm kind of mixing a few things up here, is – uh, when you talked about how can you, you know, maybe get the game of baseball to maybe right some of these wrongs, but you know, I know they went out and there's a big uh, movement to get academies. But you know, I wish I would have saw them go to HBCUs, maybe put some people in place at some of these HBCUs and start there and start recruiting black athletes because there's some HBCUs they have baseball. But the whole team is Hispanic, and so you know you kind of figure, okay, how did that happen and so there's a lot of interesting things going on uh behind the scenes in baseball, and even some of the urban the urban youth academies they started out as urban youth academies you know in in black communities, and then uh the the name of urban youth comes off and it becomes something else. And, and less and less black people get a chance to participate, or they're participating in these things less and less. And they basically changed the name from Urban Youth. I've seen that happen around. And so, Major League Baseball, uh, to me, uh, there's not enough diversity in the game. And I don't think they've done enough to address that. At the same time, they're getting more diversity. They're bringing a lot of players in from Canada, Australia. Uh, there's a few Japanese players. I think there are nine or ten of them that are in there now. Uh, there's, there's some unique things going on, but the African-American ball player, they've lost them. And can can I share one more thing that I noticed when I worked for the Royals? Sure. Uh, I used to uh, head the Royals caravan where we would go out to small communities and uh, we would take ball players and say maybe we might leave Kansas City, we go to Wichita, and then – May we drop all the way down there, close to Liberal, Kansas, close to Oklahoma border, or we might go up close to Des Moines, Iowa. And what I started to notice is that in all of these towns, there's I'm hearing some things in here that I typically don't hey, hear. Hey, Phil, are you there? Hey, yes.
0: Phil, are you there? Yes. Thank God. Uh, uh, let, let's let's uh, press the reset button. You have been listening to the Bedford & Sullivan Podcast. I'm going to go around the horn. Uh, Michael Colon, do we still have you? I'm back. David Krell, do we still have you? All right, we'll have to check back on David in a second. Nick Deontay, do we have you?
4: Yes, sir, and I'd I'd love to build on the last topic.
0: By all means. uh, I'm glad that it sounds like we, we... we have everybody back. Uh, so, Nick, wherever you want to go with that.
4: Sure. So I think that there's a few things. And I think the question that you posed to um, Phil about the uh, Afro-Latino uh, ballplayers, the, the darker skin, and I've spent a lot of time interviewing Cuban uh, baseball players and, uh, and Roberto Clemente's teammates, uh, the ones that played with him in Montreal in 1954. Uh, Orlando Cepeda, I think, said it best in uh, the PBS documentary on uh, Clemente. He said, you know, we, as Latinos, had two strikes against us. We were dark-skinned and discriminated against, the, uh, and we didn't speak the language. And so many players said the same thing and that they came here and that they couldn't order food or they ordered the same dish because that's all they knew how to eat or, you know, uh, you know, Vic." Powers' uh, story about uh, you know they were they were he's like uh, they had him at a restaurant and they were like you know whites only and he's like I don't eat white people something like along those lines um, and you know they had that uh, struggle to put up with with you know a foreign language foreign culture and uh, the discrimination that they did not face in their own uh, own country. And that was something that was really difficult to deal with. And then on the other hand, you had the light-skinned Cubans um, who some, you know, spoke fluent English. And they were in the majors before Jackie Robinson because they could pass for white. You know, take a look at the Washington Senators, 1944, 1945, right? They had Cuban ballplayers due to the shortage uh, during World War II. So, um, you know, Latino ballplayers have a really big history in this game. Uh, And often their stores again, are underrepresented because of the language barrier. But they uh, face the duality of not only being discriminated against, but navigating a completely foreign, uh, you know, territory. And that was difficult uh, for them. Um, You know, Phil also touched on MLB. And I really think, you know, MLB is being very reactive and not proactive. And they've always done that because they are so deep rooted in, quote, unquote, tradition that they're just behind the curve and as someone who works in youth athletics uh i can't begin to echo phil's sentiment that we have lost the black uh athlete from baseball uh and even though you are seeing some great young talent come up like on the high end of it you know kids that are drafted in the first round and and making impact um but you uh by and large go to black neighborhoods in urban areas across the country and the baseball fields are empty um, and those kids are not playing Little League at all. Uh, and there isn't a culture of baseball uh, in that community by and large. they you know, the fans, you know, the fanship is down and, you know, um, it's, mm-hmm. it's really difficult. I don't know if MLB will get them back unless they really take steps to lower the cost uh, of the game and remove barriers to access. They probably are going to have to subsidize local leagues and go into their elementary schools and literally give out free equipment for kids to play if they're going to want them to get back into the game, especially in er- minority areas in, in urban cities like New York, Um, where uh, there's not a lot of representation and um, incomes might be lower. Uh, I think MLB really needs to get him with both feet and not just do demonstrative stuff like play ball events. Like one-off things are not going to bring kids in. They need to get into the schools. They need to fund baseball equipment. They need to fund leagues so that, kids can get a taste of the game and play it and become fans. Because as uh, someone said earlier, right, we're already spoken for. Uh, We're fans of the game. But uh, who are the kids that are coming up that are fans of the game? You know, and Xenom is someone like Francisco Lindor here. Like if I ask in my classes tomorrow morning, who knows who Francisco Lindor is, I'm going to get a lot of blank stares. But if I ask who knows who Le- LeBron James is, majority of the hands are going to uh, go up. And uh, that is, I don't want to say a problem, but it's something that MLB has to deal with. And I think they're just denying the fact that they have a problem with attention. They're behind the curve on social media. They've had res- restrictive social media policies for so long that only within the last few years, they've started to let go of. And I think they're really paying the price for being so deep-rooted in tradition that they have lost this current generation of fans. And I don't care what demonstrative stuff that they do and actions that they take now, they are not getting those uh, kids and young adults back into the game because they did not grow up rooted uh, in the game and enjoyed it either playing or as a fan, and you're not going to hook them in their late teens and early 20s
3: you
0: know i'm here can you hear me yes yes we can hear you um i i just wanted to check on that i was going to go to you next but uh, i i want to go uh to phil who seemed uh very urgent to to make the point go ahead phil
2: yeah i well those those all of those are excellent points and uh you know, I, I, it's going to be a struggle to get the fans back. And, and you know what's interesting? I know uh, even with the Negro Leagues from the Baseball Museum, I'm one of the co-founders of that and we started in 1990 and even though the Negro Leagues have been there, I think Major League Baseball has donated $2 million to it. The number of African Americans playing baseball has decreased considerably since we started in 1990. So it's going to take more than the museum. It's going to take uh, a, a different way to approach this this game and and I also might mention too and maybe some of you guys had the same thing in the community where I grew up everybody was playing baseball and so uh it was just like a summer ritual but we were able to move from one sport to the next so we would play football we would play basketball when basketball season came then you play baseball in the summer you know, and then uh, baseball was in the summer, so you might be on the track team at the high school, in the, you know, in the spring. My whole point is that many kids now are having to specialize in one or two sports, generally one sport, and baseball is not getting the specialized uh, a lot of times of some of the best
0: athletes. David, it's not just on the field that, that Major League Baseball has a problem. You know, we were talking – about Frank Robinson not becoming the manager, uh, becoming the first black manager until the 70s. Um, But they haven't had many since, and they have uh, an atrocious record when it comes to front office hires. Uh, So this this is a a bigger problem than just on the field. Well, it it certainly is, but I don't know if,
3: this is because of black players not wanting to stay with the game afterwards. Is it a retention problem? Is it a salary problem? Uh, Would they be compensated as well in the front office as they would? And I'm talking now about the upper echelon, people like a Reggie Jackson, Uh, a lot of these hall of famers, we could certainly benefit from them in the front office. We can benefit from them in terms of community relations, scouting, analysis, and and loads of other things, but can we retain them? I I don't know the answer to that, and I don't know what MLB's plans are for that, but it it, it really comes down to, for me, Sam, something more holistic. We talk about uh, MLB uh, should pay more attention to its history. Teams should pay more attention to their legacies, but we don't as a culture. We don't. Uh, companies don't. I can tell you that for a fact, having worked in corporate archives, uh, they don't pay attention to their history. They don't pay attention to what happened in the last fifty years or the last hundred years or how the uh, or how the company began. Coca-Cola is one of the companies that's very good at this, but a lot of companies aren't, and MLB is no is no different. So, I I always say, what are we doing? Um, As I mentioned before, what can we do as fans and historians to push the ball or to push the – I was going to use a a football metaphor, to push the ball forward, but we're talking about baseball. So what can we do to advance the runner? Well, you know, Phil's writing books and Nick teaches and you're doing the podcast. These are things that that we need to keep doing, but we need to have a goal. What's our goal? Is our goal to change minds? Well, then maybe we should be writing op-eds maybe we should be organizing letter-writing campaigns to the writers to include more Negro leaguers. That's what happened in, I believe, 2006. There were, I think it was, Phil can correct me on this, but I think there were something like 18, 19 uh, Negro leaguers that got in that year because of a letter-writing campaign. So we can do a lot to chronicle those stories, give our opinions, I I was an old-time radio buff, and still am, and there was an old-time radio convention in Newark every year, and I went once in the mid-'90s, and I saw these people who were now in their 60s or 70s who used to be on air in the 30s, 40s, and 50s, and I had a ball. I watched Bob Hastings do a recreation of an Archie radio program from Archie Comics, and that was the only one I went to, and when I found out a couple of years ago that that convention was coming to a close. there would be no more conventions. I said, "Man, that's a shame. Why did they stop that?" And it wasn't too long before I called myself and said, "Well, what have you done to perpetuate it? What have you done to support them? You only went to one convention. So I think we need to keep moving forward, and I like the passion. I like the dedication that I'm hearing. But there's so much more that we can be doing as fans to make our presence known, make the problems known, make our solutions known. There are certainly outlets we we can do that with. Uh, This is one of them, obviously. uh, But we should be doing more.
0: I I want to get back to uh, Mike in a second, but I – just oh, this conversation made me think about this, and I, I have to go to Phil next on this because I think you have a unique perspective regarding it, it, this. Might be a stretch, Phil, but the injury of Bo Jackson and how, as it pertains to baseball, what do you think? What? How do you think that affected baseball's uh, uh, profile when it comes to the black athletes?
2: Wow, can you elaborate just a little bit more?
0: Sure. I, it it just seems to me that at the time, you everybody knew Bo's name. Everybody knew that Bo played everything, and then you know, a lot of people say that the football injury took the, the, the a Hall of Famer away from baseball. In that, do, do you think that weirdly, like from both your experience? and just the knowledge of what Bo meant from a folklore perspective of, of, of tales of, of American might. Um, What what do you, what do you think? Do you think that had anything to do with the trajectory of baseball as it pertains to the black athlete?
2: Yeah, I think, I think all of those stories do. I know here in Kansas city, um, you know, over, over the years, uh, even the way that uh, Amos Otis was let go, people didn't like that. Uh, they didn't like the way that Frank White was let go as a player, and also uh, from the booth years later. Uh, and so y- you lost a lot of black fans because they didn't feel that these ballplayers were getting the respect that they were due. And it, it was almost like you used the ballplayer up and then, then you get rid of them. You know, probably – Probably one of the better examples, I remember um, it was uh, we had – I'm trying to think of the other guy. Frank White was there, and Frank White – there was a young guy named Terry Shumford who was coming up, and and they gave the portrayal that Shumper was knocking White out the box, right? And it was another – I'm trying to think who the other player was, or the white player who was coming along, and there was a veteran white player, but they made it seem like – okay, this guy is helping the other guy. You know, well, one is knocking the other guy out and the other one is he's grooming the young guy and those kind of subtle things like that. You know, fans, you know, I just put it always like this. And even when I coached, I used to tell coaches, uh, these young players aren't stupid, and people aren't stupid either. They're analyzing all of your moves. And and so those are some of the unpopular moves. And Bo Jackson was one of them. He was a premier star. When I, w- I was there, uh, I would sometime come down with the mail, and Bo Jackson had three or four boxes, and George Brent would have one. And so he was certainly real popular, but the minute he got injured, he was treated like he wasn't that important. And, of course, the White Sox picked him up, and he was able to play a little bit longer. But here in Kansas City, it was a shock when they released him because people thought they would work with him and get him healthy. But they got him healthy enough and and moved him on down the road. So he never played here again.
0: And you bring up so many good points. I'm going to go to Mike next. Uh, Mike, I know you had some things to touch upon.
1: Millions of things to touch upon, but so little time. Uh, getting back, you know, drawing interest in today's youth in, in the game of baseball, it, it's, it, it's so dramatic that the Major League Baseball draft is so much less meaningful in the NFL draft and the NBA draft. Mm-hmm. I think that's part of it. You know, there's a rush to fame through the NBA and the NFL because that draft is so much more impactful in their lives. Whereas you get drafted in baseball, you're looking, you know, anywhere from two, three, five, six years in the minor leagues. And that's a tough life. And, and you know, that might dissuade somebody uh from actually sticking it out and, and choosing that as a career, uh, that's one thing. That's one thing to ponder. I, I don't know how they go about rectifying that, but you know, I think the NBA is proving itself to be one of the more, if not the most, progressive league amongst the the Big Four or Big Five, depending on how many sports you put into your, you know, Mount Rushmore. I put soccer up there as well. <laughs> but my point is the Hall of Fame. In the NBA, their Hall of Fame is all encompassing. They incorporate college as well as pro and international. And if Major League Baseball is going to take this step forward and recognize Major League uh excuse me, Negro League statistics, well then they uh, like I've been saying, they need to take this uh much more forward and and advance this in a way that they've never done before and take a bold new step and make the Hall of Fame one that incorporates all of Negro League Baseball, all of uh, American traditional baseball that we argue over, and all Caribbean League Baseball, for that matter, because at this point they're all so interconnected. One has a relationship to the other. Let us not forget that it was Negro League Baseball that brought American baseball to Cuba. They were the first to bring American baseball to the Caribbean. A lot of people like to credit Babe Ruth and his barnstorming team for bringing baseball to Japan and making it popular there. That is not true. The Negro Leagues are responsible for bringing or exporting baseball to to Japan. And I'm hoping then Mr. Dixon can clarify and give us facts on that better than I can. But my point, cycling back to the Hall of Fame, it's time to open the doors to baseball if you want to be a Hall of Fame. They're in this dilemma. They're in a conundrum what to do over these statistics. If you just incorporate all of Negro League baseball it's in its entirety, the whole narrative from the amateur era all the way through its final days in the 60s, You eliminate this conundrum because you can enjoy it in its entirety. And the debate can take place inside the Hall of Fame as opposed to outside the Hall of Fame. You know, this way, a fellow like John Donaldson gets to keep all of over his 400 career victories intact. This way, a fellow named Josh Gibson can keep all of his over 700 career home runs intact as opposed to having them divvied up uh, whether or not they fall within the parameters of 1920 to 1948. That's nonsense. And like I said, all these leagues are so intermessed with Negro leaguers going to play in Winter League baseball, American white players going to play in Winter League baseball, for that matter. The histories of Hank Aaron, Willie Mays, Roy Campanella for that matter, Jackie Robinson playing for San Cruz or other teams. So these histories are all intermeshed. This way I feel that it may be time, and I never contemplated this before, they need to open their doors like the NBA does and make it an all-encompassing Hall of Fame. This way all the records are brought into the door in their entirety. And if you want to continue the debate, well, they get conducted inside the halls, not outside where it's left to debate what gets included and what does not, because that's just plain wrong. And again, unless MLB is willing to include the entirety of the narrative that Negro League teams played against Semi-pro teams, college teams, industrial teams, textile league teams, town teams, and everything in between. Unless those games and statistics and stories and narratives and anecdotes are included, it's an injustice. Sam. Well, thanks, Mike. Uh, You guys
0: want to do another two hours? (laughs) You're going so many different directions, right?
2: Hey, hey oh, can, I, can Where, I comment on that?
0: Yes, uh, Phil, I was about to go on you.
2: Yeah, you know what? Uh, Mike just gave the most passionate plea that I've ever heard that sets the correct record correct because what they're going to do with the Negro League statistics is they're only bringing in the games that are in those leagues, first of all, the seven leagues they chose, So they're going to tell you which leagues they think are the most important. But there are great teams like the uh, 1931 Homestead Grays, who I think was the greatest black baseball team ever organized, one of the greatest baseball teams ever organized, black or white, because they weren't in that league. Those statistics won't count. But if you really want to tell the true story, You have to tell not only the games they played against black teams, but the games they played against everybody. And so that's the reason why I love that appeal you just made, because it makes more sense than anything I've heard this year than last year as well.
1: Thank you, Phil.
0: beautiful and considering we're coming into uh, uh basically the last 15 minutes of our podcast um i'm i'm going to go around the horn and see what everybody wants to touch on i'm going to start with you Nick uh before we wrap this up what are you looking to touch on uh i
4: think that you know i love baseball i love writing about it i you know i love playing it um, and I do like the game's history. Um, and I realize that I don't have a lot of direction over control of the direction of way MLB is going, and really none of us do. Um, we can be advocates, but I like to go back to each one, teach one, so if there's younger people around you, like how can you help influence them and show them that, the game is a good game and a game worth following and celebrating and I hope that MLB you know picks that up and and really runs with it um, because I think they're trying to make again a lot of reactive changes to try to you know stop the bleeding and I don't think the game itself needs to be augmented that much this you know put a runner on second base stuff like i I don't think those really like fundamental rules, the game needs to be changed. Uh, MLB needs to do a better job of showcasing the wonderful talent and athleticism that is contained uh, within, you know, the players in the league. And I think they'll be on a better path. And to bring this to, you know, the initial point of celebrating uh, Jackie Robinson, uh, there were more players other than Jackie. And, uh, you know, now that we do have a diverse league uh, because of what Jackie endured and all the other players that came after him endured, let's celebrate the diversity of the league um, and, you know, continue to go in that direction because uh, good baseball players are really going to come from all corners of the, of, uh, of the earth. And I think we just need to continue to celebrate that and showcase the diverse and extremely athletic talent that uh, exists in Major League Baseball.
0: Mike, I'm going to go back over to you, and, and you can wrap it up with uh, whatever you would like to include. Um, but I do want to go back to what you said about the Hall of Fame in that um, it's it, it's it's a crazy endeavor, especially as we talk about uh, – the bias and the the issues with the way they're interpreting the Negro Leagues and their statistics. But, you know, it, it and, and it makes me realize that I'm kind of ignorant to whether or not there's a minor league baseball Hall of Fame. Um, but th- th- there does seem to be – uh, something about baseball where within the celebration of tradition, they try to separate themselves too much from the little guy. It, 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 you know, it's one of the things that's great about baseball is the fact that it mirrors the American story and labor versus the bigwigs, wigs, uh, if you will. And that is, is a story ripe within the minor and major league ranks. Um, how how do you go about doing that? Uh, um, not not to like I said, we could talk about this for another two hours, but in whatever way you can elaborate.
1: Sam, every so often somebody comes along in life and shakes up the landscape of whatever industry, field, endeavor we may be speaking of. And what we need now is a radical departure from past practice. And if they really want to be progressive, they make to make bold steps and, 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 and ponder bold maneuvering uh, as opposed to safe, what they think are safe, conservative steps forward. No, you've had plenty of time for that. You've had decade upon decade upon decade to accomplish that and failed other than, as I say, patting yourself on the back. So now there's a lot of making up to do. So something bold needs to happen, something altering, something different, and something that the majority of us will applaud. And the most difficult decisions in life easily made. And usually they start out being unpopular, but in the end turn out being the right ones. So I, I just hope that these people take into consideration that, look, we, we, we've gotten into something that we have not really thought through. So let's get together, incorporate all the minds that we possibly can and get this done. But I will say echoing Mr. David Krell's sentiments throughout the show this evening that the greatest tidal wave of influence is going to be generated by us, meaning Nick collection and ongoing interviews with players and Mr. Nixon and his lifelong dedication to revealing to us Negro League history and Mr. Krell again with his writing and research and really for inspiring to conduct this show this evening and keep the conversation going, not only going, but to amp it up a little bit. Because this happens, this needs to happen more. Again, we're up against and we're opposing those who like to control the narrative. Let's call it for what it is. Baby boomers suck. Generation X suck, of which <laughs> I'm a part of. We've done a bad job. So <laughs> if we, the fan and the interested and the passionate members of this, you know, society that we like to call baseball, want to see it move forward in a better direction, we will be the ones who create the tidal wave. And ultimately, MLB is going to have to serve. They'll have no choice. Well said. David,
0: what do you got in your mind?
3: Well, I think this year or this spring, to be more specific, I will make it a point to read at least two books about the Negro Leagues on my reading list. Um, we all have reading lists. We all have books we mean to get to. Some of them are baseball. Some are not. But there are terrific books out there on Negro League scholarship. And considering that there's no Sabre Convention, there hasn't been a Negro League conference in a while either, uh, we, we have to seek other opportunities to educate ourselves. And I think for, for me, that's going to be reading biographies.
0: Thank you David, greatly appreciated. And and let's loop over to Phil Dixon. Yeah, you know,
2: one thing I will say, you're talking about breaking barriers and doing different things. You know, I uh, released a book called The Dizzy and Daffy Dean Barnstorming Tour. And one of the reasons why I released that book, I'm a lifelong baseball fan, but I noticed that there are no black guys writing about old white guys in baseball. It's very hard to get your work published when you're doing that. And so I decided that I was going to do that. A matter of fact, my next book is coming as well, because there are stories uh, that need to be told there from a different point of view. And there are things that I discovered about the deans that were never said before. And so I was able to write that, but... Why am I in the year 2020 uh, – actually, I wrote that 2019 you, – you, if I ask you, can you name five black guys who have written books about old white guys, Everybody's has to scratch their head. There's a lot of work and change that needs to be happen, happening here, and I love the fact that you guys are talking about baseball needs to take some bold steps, and we as people need to be taking some bold steps in making this change. So I love this conversation we've had tonight. I'm going to have to go back and listen to it because I'm I'm inspired. Hey, guys, you didn't give me work to do for the next five months. <laughs> but but I certainly enjoyed the conversation, and uh, and uh, let's keep it up.
0: Oh, for sure. Thank you, Mr. Uh, Mr. Dixon, as we've been referring to you all night. Uh, Mr. Phil Dixon, Negro League historian extraordinaire. Uh, I, You're you're absolutely right. I mean, and this is the thing that it constantly uh, lets us know is that there isn't room in only two hours to talk about all of this. So, well, with the last three minutes, let's go around the horn. Let's get some shameless plugs. Mister Phil Dixon, off you uh, please. You go ahead. Well, I was going to say be sure and go over to my
2: website nlbalive.com, dot com, dot com, and. After tonight, I've been busy working out some books. I haven't been writing any blogs, but after tonight, I think I'm going to go back and write a few blogs on these statistics because uh, this is a conversation that needs to be had. So that's my shameless plug.
0: Excellent. Thank you, Phil, for joining us this evening. Let's go over to the Brooklyn Trolley blogger, Mike LeColon.
1: I just want to say it's been a pleasure speaking with everyone here tonight, including Phil Maylard, who isn't with us at the moment. Uh, We've had him on podcasts before, and it's always a pleasure speaking with him. Mr. Dixon, Nick, Mr. Krell, likewise, always a pleasure speaking with you guys. Uh, Very insightful, very educational for me personally, and uh, I'm much appreciative uh, for your time and sharing this knowledge with us. Uh, I would only like to add that, again, through the efforts of you, and hopefully the listeners, uh, you know, we can influence the narrative and make it as correct as possible.
0: Excellent. Thank you, Mike. And I also want to reiterate a thank you to uh, Mr. Phil Maylard. He is a Brooklynite and filmmaker. Uh, You can check out his website, tomorrowmedia.com, to see what Phil is up to. Uh, And I'm going to go over to Nick Deontay. Thank you for joining us this evening. First time on Bedford & Sullivan Podcast.
4: Well, I really enjoyed being here. And uh, for folks that have stuck around this long, um, I encourage you to check out my site, baseballhappenings.net, as well as give me a follow on social media. Uh, It's at Examine Baseball based on whatever platform you're using. And you can also check out my column with Forbes Sports, which is easily searchable. And, um, you know, like I said, I just en- enjoyed the conversation tonight. And I hope that, you know, people leave here motivated to dig deeper into the game's history and, and go and try to read about something that you're unfamiliar with because you'll be able to open a door to a part of the history of the game that you were unfamiliar with and see that there's a lot more than just the, you know, big stars that you know of that are in the Hall of Fame.
0: Thank you for that, Nick. And uh, last but not least, Mr. David Krell.
3: My book, 1962, Baseball and America in the Time of JFK, is available for pre-publication orders on Amazon. It will be released on May 1st. If you buy it, I encourage you and ask you to write a review on Amazon. You'll be surprised how valuable those reviews are to authors.
0: Excellent, David. Thank you. And thank you for giving the inspiration to organize this podcast tonight. And thank you to all of you out there for listening to the Bedford and Sullivan podcast. Uh, And again, this is all to support. This is my shameless plug. This is all to support my writing endeavors regarding uh, wanting to make a narrative television series about Brooklyn and the Dodgers. And it's not just the corner of Bedford and Sullivan where the Brooklyn Dodgers played. Uh, It's also the story of all of these black athletes that we talk about, all of Negro league baseball, uh, whether it pertains to just Brooklyn or whether it pertains to all over America, that is the story we are trying to tell. And uh, thank you again, as always for listening and want to thank Nick, want to thank David, want to thank Mr. Maylard, want to thank Mr. Dixon and want to thank, Uh, Mike LeColon, thank you guys all for joining us tonight. Take care. We'll catch you next time.
1: Thank you. Thank you. Good night, all. Thank you.